I said, I'm going to wear bright colours. Would you mind not upstaging me? <laughs> Chapter 110 in the poorly coordinated outfits stakes. It's just like brilliant, isn't it? If anybody needs to have some sort of attack or anything as a result of these hallucinogenic <laughs> pattern combinations, please just do it quietly if you, if you could. Uh, hello. It's so great to be in Perth. It is. <laughs> it is not an inconsiderable feat for us to make it all the way to Perth. Do you know the best thing about coming to Perth? Four and a half hours on a plane. No one can call you. It was like we were boarding and we are just like, go, 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 put it on airplane mode now, do it on now, in case somebody rings and it all goes horribly wrong. Crab held hers up to show me, look, it's on airplane mode. <laughs> and then we were in this, on this plane just going, <laughs> it was like the most childish excitement, really. We were able to get a bit of content for the show by watching and reading a few things, which was good. Um, That's right. We don't know a lot about Western Australia, Crab and I, because I'm from Queensland. I'm from rural South Australia. I'm from a regional pocket. But luckily um, we do have somebody who was able to give us a bit of assistance. Do you know my producer Callum that we talk about in the podcast who's known... Hot Callum! Well, Hot Callum is a uh, local Perth boy. And he's in the house! He's here tonight! Hot Callum! Oh, come on. Come on. There he is! Hot Callum! We promised you sizzle. Poor Callum. The reason people generally choose to be producers is because they do not like to be in the spotlight. So you just called him Hot Callum in a sort of like reverse Weinstein situation. Like, I mean, it's... I just... Yeah. At some point you'll be denounced. You'll be the Louis C.K. of Australian television and I'm just going to be – I'm going to be standing right behind you, like about 500 metres behind you, but like behind you. Um, so I should ask actually because I just want to point out in front of witnesses that the person who coined the um, Monica Hot Callum was you. Um, how do you – Could have been worse, Callum. Does it bother you to be known as Hot Callum? Uh, it doesn't bother me but I feel that I'm constantly disappointing people because <laughs> – Obviously, podcasting is an audio medium, and so when people hear Hot Callum, I feel that it's like a blank slate for their most erotic fantasies. <laughs> and then I turn up, and I've got okay teeth and most of my hair still, which is the standard you need to meet to be hot at the ABC, because we're not commercial. <laughs> so, Sorry. So, you, to be clear, you have actually been on dates where people have said... Are you hot, Callum? There have been a couple. And I can't go into too much detail because they're avid listeners. Um, But I was catfished once. (laughs) To that person who doesn't look like their profile picture, thanks for the most awkward 15 minutes of my life. And I didn't pass that anecdote on to Lee or Annabelle. You better explain to Lee what catfishing is because I've exposed some real gaps in her... uh... (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> over the course of the day. No. <clears throat> so what do we need to know about Perth so we can pass as locals? Uh, there's a few topics of conversation where you can't go wrong. The stadium, it's nice. Um, merging, we're crap at it in WA. Um, and the GST is possibly the greatest injustice to be suffered by any people anywhere ever. <laughs> Getting some strong crowd support there. Um, I have a question for you, Callum. Um, now, I am not sure if this is a breach of protocol, but I became aware recently that um, Lee, who is, of course, according to one of our more recent Prime Ministers, uh, the most beautiful woman on Australian television, um, I understand that she was invited to participate in a certain magazine's Sexiest People of Australia um, list. Is that true? And, and, and how has that worked on the program? I think it breaches the spirit of the <laughs> rules if you decline the invitation to then claim the mantle of being on the sexiest list. But <laughs> nevertheless, um, it is true, but it just wouldn't have worked having two incredibly sexy people working together. <laughs> so Sales had to take one for the team. Look, I sort of... I quite... I understand... 
I understand how that works. I just felt I was... like if I participated, I mean, right. it's okay, not we'll fair. Yeah. It's not fair to the other people on the list <laughs> because I just would raise the bar so high. As Callum knows, like when the invitation came through, when Callum wiped the tears of mirth from his face um, and we looked at, you know, my cardigan that I'd worn for about, I don't know, 26 days in a row, um, my lemon and ginger tea. Yeah, we were like, yeah. Um, I've got to say, recently um, when you were travelling interstate on sad business, I went and took your washing off the line and I've got to say... Wow. (laughs) Wow. Speaking of breaching the spirit of... Those undergarments need updating. She... (laughs) Crab did... All I'll say, I'm very discreet. (laughs) Crab did send me one of the funniest... I I hesitate to say that the reason she was getting my washing off the line was because my father had just passed away, which is why she was doing it. So it made me look like the bad guy. So she sends me this text message that's something like, you know, love, I'm sure... I'm sure those undies were perfectly fine when you bought them at Pound Savers in 1984. <laughs> and then it went on along in this vein and it ended with, sorry to kick you in your ghoulies when your dad just died. <laughs> Look, this, it's the sort of news that there's no good time to, to actually communicate, mate. Should we, just being a mate. Should we release Hot Callum back into the wilds of hotness? Absolutely. He's got to be <laughs> so feasted upon. <laughs> I love Perth. I love everything about Perth. Um, I love that Christy Diffie lives here. Like, Christy Diffie, you in the audience, just give me a woo. So Christy Diffie is the chatter who completely knocked our socks off last year. Was it? No, it was longer than a year ago. It was longer than that. Yeah, when she presented us um, with uh, gingerbread replicas of Helen Garner. Like, that is... It was amazing. A high-grade biscuit... Uh, beautifully decorated. She was holding a little fondant first stone. Oh, my God. It was so good. And do you know what? This is disgusting, but I've still got mine. I've got it pinned up. Like, I didn't eat it or anything. Um, your kids destroyed yours, I remember. Yeah. I, I ate Garner's head, though. Yeah. So. <laughs> there you go. Uh, and uh, mine's still up on my pin board. The fondant's faded a bit, but it's still definitely there. Um, anyway, she's struck again tonight, this woman. She's good. So she's presented us with a little box of. Can we so hold she's it baked. Up, sort of. I'll, I'll do. I'll get to that. I'm just like I'm. I'm. People might like to see them as you're describing right. them. All right. All right. Oh, okay. Well, you take over. Um, <laughs> so I'm sure you can all see this very clearly. Look, so uh, the ones at the top are called scoyos. <laughs> a prime ministerial twist. On the old favourite yo-yo biscuit. Shelf life's on that is more like about six months. Uh, um, and then... The bottom This ones. is actually the, the more compelling biscuit, I think. Uh, this is the Yacht Tam. Get it? A nod to the cult boyfriend. An otter-lengish version of the Tim Tam made with spiced cauliflower and pumpkin. Are you for real, Christy Diffie? That is... Off the charts. Can you uh, eat one and tell Does me not contain smoked oysters. I ate a scoyo and they were delicious. Right. And so you have a, one of the Tim Tam okay. types. You talk well. Like, God, it's actually even got the profile of a Tim Tam. Look at that. Look at the – like it's I clearly got it a double ice, shortbread with a filling. I assumed it was an iced Tim Tam, which is probably um, making <laughs> Christy You go, don't get it really oh, at all, do you? Christy's <laughs> just like, I'm going to vomit. Like, that's, how dare you? Um, you talk while I just dispatch Okay, and then this. you can come back. Um, can Where's um, Sam Cuthbertson? Oh, hello, Sam. There you go. Hello. Um, she okay. Everyone knows Brenda. That's Brenda's cousin. She said for us to give her a shout out. Brenda doesn't ask for much. It's so Mr. Brenda's yeah. cousin. Mr. Brenda's Mr. cousin. Mr. Brenda's cousin and like platinum chatter. Platinum chatter. Whatever oh. that means. Um, it I, means whatever we need it to mean at the moment. And I'm how's very that? so good. Like I love a vegetable in a cake, and that is just that is just. Stupidly delicious. <laughs> Dippy, what are you doing hanging around with us losers? You need to be like, you need to be on the world stage. <laughs> um, now, we are in um, Perth because we spoke on Friday at a conference that we come to every year, which is. Also when, known as Yesterday Sales. Women in. 
Did anyone hear like a sort of buzzing? Like, um, it's <laughs> women in mining Western Australia, uh, which is a, yes, is an awesome group of chicks, which was established by Sabina Shug, um, with the help of her sister Vanessa Shug. They organise a, a conference of unsurprisingly, women in mining, and we absolutely love coming to it because we always meet heaps of really interesting I just uh, don't think there is one boring woman that works works in the resources sector in Western Australia that all interesting. There was an awesome woman yesterday who spoke named Shannon I mean, feel free to name one. (laughs) A woman named Shannon Ude spoke yesterday who was an electrician and she was just fantastic. It made me think about, you know, as an electrician, your job, you would not think that that would involve public speaking, and yet she got up in front of this room full of people and, like, everyone was just eating out of her hand. She was an yep. amazing public speaker. It was yep. just so great. Um, so uh, every the night before the um, conference, Wimmar has a fundraiser, usually for a local charity, um, and one of the charities that they were supporting this year was called Shooting Stars, um, which we have decided from our show, because we always pick a local charity from our show, that we would donate a percentage of the um, takings from this show to support Shooting Stars. It is an organisation that helps – it uses sport, in this particular case netball, to encourage um, Indigenous girls to attend school and and improve their school attendance. So, um, yeah. So – so it's sort of run by Netball WA and Glass Jar and um, the chick who runs it is Fran Haynes. She's awesome. And she was there with a bunch of the girls who have come through this program. They were just like the most great chicks. They were um, having a fantastic time at this conference too. And um, it ha- it's a real area of need because fewer than 30% of Aboriginal girls finish year 12. Um, and of the girls who get enrolled in this program, 80% on the program reach average school attendance. So it does definitely make a real difference to them and it helps with personal development, self-respect and all those sorts of really good things that set you up for life. Can I do one more little shout out to somebody? Um, a really lovely social worker from uh, a Perth hospital got in touch with me um, earlier this year to say would I be able to – there was a young girl there named Savannah Addis who was a fan of mine and would it be okay if he put um, – me in touch with her because she was very, very ill. And I said, no problem. And we started talking uh, and she was an awesome girl. And um, I said, I'll put some tickets aside for you to come to our Chat 10 show in Perth. And unfortunately, she died before she was able to get here tonight. But her um, mum, Helen, her dad, Ralph, and her sister, Jamila, are here with us. And I just wanted to say hello to them and thank you very much for coming and to say that while Savannah is uh, gone, she's certainly not forgotten. And I wanted to share with the group um, that Helen sent me an email and she talked about in Savannah's last days, um, she gave people Savannah's rules. And Savannah's rules, I think, are awesome. Um, They are... Um, be strong and positive, face life with courage, slow down, be kind, take every opportunity to make the world a better place and live life with no regrets. So good on you, Savannah. Now, um, what have you been listening to, watching, reading? Okay, so I've just been uh, obsessively consuming the greatest new podcast. I mean, is it new? I don't know. I never know where anything, like whether something's new. Sometimes I'll find something, I'll be like, this is awesome. This is like the greatest book. You should read it. And people are like, it won the Booker Prize eight years ago, you idiot. Like, I, don't, I feel like nobody tells me anything. Like, I do actually apply myself and then there's all this stuff that I miss. I never feel like I'm sort of up to date. But so this podcast that I've been listening to is called Everything is Alive. And it is like the, I can hear a little, little murmur. Um, it is the strangest premise for a podcast. So um, it's an interviewer. His name is Ian Chilag. 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 Chilag, Ian. Yeah, Chilag. <laughs> I don't know. My surname is Crab. I'm not in a position to know, got another present mock anybody. Um yeah, like that seems to be a really f- fancy macaron. Is that your way of communicating? You're not that interested in my, like, <laughs> like you're just like, oh, well, you're just like, oh. <sighs> this is what I live with. Um, anyway, so this guy interviews these characters and the interesting thing about the characters, like it's, it's like a proper interview about your life and your experiences and your reflections on things, but all of his interview subjects are inanimate objects. So the first one I listened to was an interview with Tara, who's a bar of soap. 
and you think, well, that is how can that? That's so absurd. And then you start listening, and it's highly addictive. So Tara and like the voices are just fabulous. So Tara is like, yeah, well, you know, um, soap. I mean, been around a long time, but uh, fifteen years ago, when body wash was invented, like. Wow, life, oh, life so really she's changed. Speaking generically for soap, not she's not a specific. She's bar of a soap. specific bar of oh, soap, she but oh. she's reflecting on the experience, right? And there's this of her people, and so after what you just genuinely engaged in what this bar of soap has to say, and it's just it's something about the way that the interviewer, like it's so straight faced, right? So he's like, yeah, well, I, I always wondered, I wanted to ask you about this, like I mean. You live in the bathroom, you know, and, um, you know, you, you see a lot of stuff, I'm guessing. And she's like, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you start thinking, oh, my God, yeah, right. A bar of soap does see a lot of stuff. Anyway, there's, there's also one with a, a can of cola, uh, um, Louis, the can of cola. And he's not like he's a generic supermarket uh, oh, bottom no shelf cola. Yeah. So they have a lot of conversations about what that means. Right. Uh, and, okay, so it is ridiculous, but I just found it so exultantly joyous and it's – I can't even explain how at the end of 25 minutes of listening to this podcast you are thinking more deeply about the human condition, but you just are. <laughs> and it's, it's absurd. It's brilliant. It is so addictive. Um, I'm halfway through listening to Maeve the Lamppost. Who looks in like she's in New York and she's quite tall. So she's like, one of the things that, uh, yeah, I, I see a lot of stuff. I'm often aware that people are balding before they're aware. <laughs> I said, <laughs> and she also like likes to watch movies because she can see into the second floor apartment. And she really loves this movie called Singing in the Rain, which is about lampposts. Oh. Like there are a couple of supporting characters that are human, wow. but like is this it's, NPR or who, who's the um, this guy? Well, I, I can't remember which. You know, it's some fancy podcast outfit. I can't remember, but like right. it's um, anyway. Oh my god, I really I'm that loving it. Good. What's and called? one of the everything it's is called alive. everything is alive. And one of the things that um, actually I think I know why I like it. I think. Because I feel like right now there is such a failure, like a widespread failure to imagine what the lives of others are like. You know, there is this real – feels like there's this extremism in public debate where it's like, well, you're a monster. No, you're a monster. You should die. You know, like it's just – Yeah, everyone stakes out their camp. Right, you know, that. and I find that really upsetting and I hate – I hate it when people don't listen, you know, and particularly when they don't listen to their enemies, you know. It's even. an excellent exercise in empathy, isn't it? And just yeah, and it's imagining. so absurd because you're like, I'm listening to what a bar of soap thinks. This is like the I mean, the Australian will hear about this and go nuts. But yeah, no, because it's like, <laughs> it's because like moral you, equivalence now applies to soap too, people. But it does have a bit because you'd think, oh, well, what would a bar of soap have to say? But you know, like then it sort of puts you into thinking, oh, well, actually, and it just shifts your thinking. Wow, right. I can't believe I've bought into this I know, right? crazy town Welcome. idea. It's so good. I love it. So um, get into it. So I had a very happy coincidence on the plane on the way here. I've been watching a television program called Feud, um, which is uh, – I downloaded it on iTunes. It was on Foxtel, I think, a couple of years ago. Um, it's about – Betty Davis and Joan Crawford and the making of the film Whatever Happened to Baby Jane and the personal animosity that the two women had. Um, Joan Crawford's played by Jessica Lange and Betty Davis is Susan Sarandon. There's a really awesome cast of people around them, Alfred Molina, Stanley Tucci. So it's a series. It's a series, yeah. I think there's How maybe eight not, episodes. Like, why didn't everyone – I mean, obviously now that you've told me to watch it, I'll give it about five years and then I'll finally <laughs> watch it. Then I'll be like, this is great! Um, anyway, I'd been watching it and thinking – do you know what would I feel like would really help me here? It would be if I could see whatever happened to Baby Jane. We get on the plane. I look in the classics menu. There it is, sitting right there. So on the I'm way to Perth. you, greatest weekend ever. <laughs> so, and I, I must admit I had sort of low expectations because firstly I don't like horror and also it was an old film and so I thought it, like it would be a bit schlocky. Oh, God, it was great. It was absolutely great. Um, 
it reminded me the tone of it is like the film Misery, which is it's a sort of horror I can tolerate, which is like a psychological horror. It's not gory horror. Um, and it's the sort of horror, it's where one person has power over someone who has is powerless and so the powerful person is able to abuse their power and much like with Misery, it's uh, somebody caring for someone who is incapacitated. Um, and in this, whatever happened to Baby Jane, um, the Betty Davis character used to be, as a ch- she was a child star called Baby Jane who used to have a sort of act and her sister was Blanche who was sort of jealous of her and then Blanche grows up to be an incredible movie star and Baby Jane's career sort of ends and so they have this rivalry and jealousy and so forth um, and it's playing out with um, Blanche is in a wheelchair, there's been an accident and Jane now cares for her. Anyway, it just unfolds in a very... Um, very engaging way. Betty Davis um, was nominated for an Oscar for her performance and she is excellent. But Joan Crawford, I thought, was also absolutely fantastic. Um, and it's so did you feel, having watched the series, that you had a greater into insight into what was going on oh, with it those was, two you, women? You're watching it very intently. And, in fact, there was one bit that um, in the show I had already seen a subplot unfold, which um, the actress is, um, I don't know her name, but she played Sally Draper in Mad Men, the daughter, um, and she plays Betty Davis's daughter in this. And she's given a very minor part in the film. And there's this subplot about how dreadful Betty Davis's daughter is and there's some scenes where Betty's trying to coach her and the daughter they have a fairly difficult relationship and the daughter's saying oh you make it look so easy and I'm so terrible and Betty's like oh you're not that bad then when I'm watching the film you hear um the 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 character is the neighbor's daughter the first line of dialogue out of this person's mouth they're not in shot and literally the sound of her voice and the the wooden delivery I went oh my god what is this and then it you you realize oh it's the neighbor's daughter. Oh my God, she really is that bad. And that's Betty Davis's daughter. <gasps> it's it's seriously the worst acting I've ever seen in my life. Um, anyway, it's so you're sort of watching the film very. I found actually probably watching it where I have, which is a few episodes into the show, and then you see the film. I feel like it's brought more to both experiences, if you know what I mean. Um, but it's the sort of horror where, much as I did with Misery, I found myself like guffawing and laughing at certain moments with that nervous laugh that you do in a horror film um, where you just – like I don't know if anyone remembers in Misery where he's trying to sort of get out and he knocks the ornament over and he sort of catches it and you're just – you're laughing because the tension is ratcheted up so high and that's what this film's like. Um, anyway, the feud, what's really interesting is that the film itself is about the rivalry between two ageing women who've had, um, you know, at a certain point successful careers and then they don't and they still have this rivalry. But but then the actresses who played them were basically in exactly the same position in the twilights of their career and it follows through their desperation to try to hang on to their careers at a time where, you know, the sexism was just extraordinary. I googled them to see how old they were when Baby Jane was made. Um, Betty Davis was 55, Joan Crawford was 57. Um, Joan Crawford I, I was still gobsmackingly beautiful Betty Davis is done up to look very, very bad in the film but also I think um, there's a scene in Feud where Susan Sarandon's watching the dailies and she's just quietly weeping watching herself on the screen and you know it's because she is devastated at how old and sort of haggard she looks. And um, when I saw the film with actual Betty Davis, I did think, oh, man, the bravery to put yourself out like that when you've been a great beauty and a great actress. And just the injustice of it that they were both um, obviously – I thought in this film both of their acting was just phenomenal – but, you know, so their acting was at its peak as Hollywood judged that their looks were in complete decline, you know, and at a low point. And so they had this incredible injustice where they felt like they had a lot to give, but they just were not being given roles. And the episode that I'm up to now in Feud is called Hagsploitation, where um, Jack Warner, who's running the Warner Brothers studio, is whatever happened to baby Jane has come out and it's been a massive, massive hit. And they're saying, oh, people love these hags because people get off on that these women used to be beautiful and now they're not. And there's a certain satisfaction in seeing that. And so we need more hag films and they call it, they openly call it hagsploitation. It was really, it's really quite sad to watch. And 
then you also bring the additional layer to it of watching Susan Sarandon and Jessica Lange in these roles who are also older women. Um, Jessica Lange has had an extraordinary amount of work to the point that I think she's sort of unrecognisable and and then you just – so you just – all of this sort of meta subtext that's being brought to it. And it's very – well, the acting's brilliant. Alfred Molina in it is – who plays the director of Whatever Happened to Baby Jane is absolutely fantastic. It's really great. I highly recommend it. Right. Well, I want to start watching that immediately. Yeah, like, it's let's great. Let's just like – Go home. But you, you were also watching old school Hollywood. Well, I um I was watching at the same time as you were watching Baby Jane. I was next door to you watching um a documentary called Bombshell, which is about the life of Hedy Lamarr. Um, now I know nothing about Hedy Lamarr. Like I know that she's a famous old Hollywood bombshell, incredible beauty. Um, but really, she was in Samson and Delilah. That's all I knew. Um, but oh my god, this woman's life is extraordinary. Like it, it's a brilliant documentary, but it's just an f- absolute feast of riches. This woman's life is just beyond belief. So she grew up in Vienna. Um, she was Jewish. Um, she married a munitions billionaire and was sort of kept like a pet by him. And then she escaped by posing as uh, a maid. She'd hired a maid that looked quite a bit like her so that she could eventually sneak out as this maid. She sewed all this jewellery into her coat and then sneaked off to London, which also got her out of um, a very sticky Nazi-related situation, of course, um, more broadly there at the time. And then she went and met Louis B. Mayer. She didn't speak a word of English, but she was so beautiful that he was just like, well, come and be a movie star. She'd been in um, a film already in in um, Austria, which was like quite a racy one where she took a top off and was all a bit scandalous. Um, anyway, so she went off to Hollywood and she uh, became a movie star. Like she learned English lines and she was so penetratingly beautiful that she was like this complete hot stuff, although she was sort of in that studio system where they just warehoused beautiful women and like drove them crazy by not putting them in films um, but like sort of keeping them hanging around. Anyway, but the thing that I didn't know about her um, among an ocean of things that I didn't know about her was that she was also like a really passionate inventor. Like she was quite like she was quite a brilliant mathematician and scientist and she she had a lab set up. She met Howard Hughes who gave her a, like set up a lab in her home and she would invent stuff. And one of the things that um, she invented during World War II was um, she was very frustrated that the uh, German U-boats seemed to be um, taking a great toll and couldn't be sort of tracked or torpedoed because they had this sort of jamming system where they detected torpedoes. So she designed an anti-jamming radio-controlled torpedo um, because she used – she reason she was in cahoots with this composer called George Antile who was like an avant-garde composer they got together and they worked out that like if you hopped frequencies back and forth um on your torpedo you could be unscramblable or you could be unhackable and so she got a patent for this invention and she submitted it to the um, American um, Navy and uh, I know, right? And in the end, they 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 did use it, but they never paid her for it because she was. They declared her to be an alien. I know, right? It's so bonkers. Anyway, but she too um, ended up dying alone in a um, and a, a recluse. She had a huge amount of plastic surgery because she was so sensitive about her fading looks, and she died alone but she did do some um telephone interviews with this journalist at I can't remember which newspaper and he when he was cleaning out his desk years after she died found these tapes and they faced they actually formed the basis of this documentary oh my gosh so crazy it's hard but- enough watching you face and your body age in the mirror when you're not beautiful imagine how um <laughs> imagine how hard that would be when you're considered to be really, really beautiful. And when that's, that's your, your main thing. Oh Even though God. when you've got this other thing that no one's interested in because your main thing is just being really hot. Sorry, Callum. It must be <laughs> tough for, for him too. Can um, I just say one thing also about um, Callum? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I have had – so in the sort of roughly decade that I've been doing 7.30, I've had three – I have a personal producer who works with me, which is what Callum does. So when I'm preparing for interviews or broadcasts or whatever, which they're working – needs a glass of warm water, like just like <laughs> – not room temperature, like more tepid or just north of tepid. I don't know. How does it roll? They work alongside me. Um, so we're researching stuff at the same time and I might say, oh, Callum, I need the unemployment figures. He'll go, here they are. Um, I've had three of them, Justin, Julia and Callum. They've all been in their 20s and I just want to say that they have all utterly debunked this notion that, oh, millennials, they're, they're just lazy and they all they want to do is leave and go to their yoga. They are the three three of the hardest working people that I've ever worked with and I just – every time I hear someone sort of diss young people's work ethic or whatever, I just think, no, I'm sorry, young people are awesome and, yeah <laughs> – there you go, Hallam. Callum, hot and awesome. <laughs> well, you could just be like a really like over-demanding like <laughs> colleague. <laughs> they just leave crying every day. <laughs> hey, I did a bit of reading this afternoon because we had a bit of time and so I am currently reading Bob, Bob Woodward's Woodward. new book oh, about yeah. Trump because uh, I'm interviewing Bob Woodward next week for 7.30. Clang! Um, <laughs> I'm just reading it because I'm interested in it. I'm never going to meet Bob Woodward. <laughs> just so we're totally clear. Oh, the, actually, I've interviewed Bob Woodward once before, I just remembered. Um, now that I've got glasses, I can see. Have you seen like what that. she's doing with the glasses? I can just. Has anyone noticed, like, she only got glasses quite recently, and I've just been. Hang on, while you're speaking, I need to do this. <laughs> See, you do 7.30 for 10 years, you turn into Kerry O'Brien. Like, it's like, <laughs> it's, actually, it's actually a rule. And, like, those glasses just going further and further yeah, down right. that nose. Next thing you know, she'll have one of those green Pentel pens and, no, like... A... Tell your anecdote. I'm sure it'll meet with my approval. <laughs> the great thing about sales and glasses is that, like, it's really interesting to watch someone who's just got glasses really take them for a ride. And sales, like, obviously quite vain, so really held out against getting glasses for quite a long time and then she got glasses and now all of a sudden like you, you on television you're not like Malcolm Turnbull with the well the thing is you know I, I you know yes what Laura Tingle yes yes you know with the gesticulation but you do like you have them on the desk I've seen you and then when you start like when the shit starts to get real with the interview then you put the glasses on it's like this <laughs> So you're like, oh, yes, blah, 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 blah. Oh, really? Because in 1992 you said blah, blah, blah. Like when you're really about to just really crush them like a bug, that's when the glasses go on. I love it. I'm not going to lie. I have practised a few power moves with my glasses. <laughs> Back to the work of Bob Woodward. Um, okay, this is... Bob Woodward's shtick is that he still believes in what I believe in, which is old school objective journalism where you present the facts and you allow the readers to make up their own mind. So he's not peppering it with, you know, how evil Trump is. It is literally a straight sort of um, narrative, which can get a little boring as a read. Um, but really selling this. No, but it, I find his work incredibly valuable because it's meticulously researched. He presents dialogue in inverted commas, which I think is controversial because if you're not in the room, you know, how do you actually do that? But he cross-references, you know, with everyone who's in the room to, to have it as accurate as he possibly can. So, I mean, his – I forget how many books he's written, about 18. It's factually sort of – has been factually unimpeachable, every book that he's written about every presidency. And so – it's interesting reading this. What it does for you, because we know a lot already about Trump that, you know, I think I can say unequivocally that he is a liar, um, that he is a narcissist. We know these things about him. Um, and I always feel like, well, surely I can't learn anything more that sort of adds to that conclusion being drawn. And let that, yet then you hear further anecdotes and you think, wow. And then it just sort of mounting, um, you know, sort of weight of it all becomes quite crushing. So it starts with this um, unbelievable... It's a strong opening. Yeah. Well, you've read the first chapter. I have, yeah. And it's 
It's kind of like if you read the um, the anonymous editorial in the New York Times that was the talk of the town 72 hours ago before the next insane thing happened, um, it's, it's that editorial but with meat on the bones. So it is a really graphic demonstration of an example of the thing that the loyal resistance inside the White House was talking about in that editorial. Yeah, and so it's basically he wants to rip up the free trade agreement with South Korea and he keeps asking for it to be done and everyone's completely horrified because there's US military assets in South Korea that allow them to detect if North Korea were to launch launch a missile towards the west coast of the US, it can be detected in something like nine seconds out of South Korea if they were relying on the um, you know, next military base that can do that, which is in Alaska, it would take 15 minutes. So there's actually an incredible national security. Keep in mind security. that the missile takes 38 minutes to get to America, to LA basically from um, North Korea. So there is an incredible imperative to not destroy your relationship with South Korea. Anyway, basically Trump is insistent um, that he wants, because he thinks that the terms of trade of the deal favour South Korea, he wants it to be um, shredded. And so some of the key um, people in this space are just removing the document from his desk, you know, the letter to go to the South Korean president um, to rip up the deal, which is, you know, I'm looking forward to sort of asking Woodward about it, because to me it feels... Like, wow, that is disturbing because these people are presenting it like the um, New York Times op-ed, which is, well, we're a resistance from within that we're stopping these things happening. But then you think, well, geez, he's the elected, the, you know, whatever you think, he's the elected president of the country and you people presumably are deciding among yourselves like, oh, geez, we've got to stop this from happening, which that becomes an incredibly slippery and dangerous slope. It's also incredibly dangerous in the opposite direction if you let him do whatever. So that's profoundly disturbing. But then there's also just constant anecdotes about the man's character that I just find. And again, you know, you think that there's nothing more to learn. But talking about how after that episode where um, he was caught, the tape came out about Access Hollywood where he was talking about you can grab him on the pussy and do whatever you like, blah, blah, blah. So he's been very you know, much disowned by everybody over at the Republican establishment. Um, And so Woodward writes about on the Sunday morning talk shows that weekend, um, everyone on the Trump campaign has refused to appear on the Sunday morning talk shows except for Rudy Giuliani. Um, So Rance Priebus, Chris Christie, um, Kellyanne Conway, who, you know, will do anything for him, they... They had all been scheduled to do the Sunday morning talk shows and they all cancelled and they would not go out and talk on his behalf. Giuliani appeared on all five, completing what is called a full Ginsburg, a term in honour of William H. Ginsburg, the attorney for Monica Lewinsky, who appeared on all five network Sunday programs on February 1st, 1998. Giuliani gave or tried to give the same spiel on each show. Trump had been re- Trump's words had been reprehensible and terrible and awful, but he's apologised. He's not the same man that he was when those words were captured on tape, you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, you know... Steve Bannon was watching from home. He, he described it as a brutal slog for Giuliani. Um, you know, Giuliani, Woodward writes, Giuliani was exhausted, practically bled out, but he had proved his devotion and friendship. He had pulled out every stop, leaning frequently and heavily on his own Catholicism, talking about, you know, confessing your sins and saying you won't, can, won't do it again, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then Giuliani does the five talk shows, just, you know, destroys himself makes it to a plane um, that they're all going off for one of the debates. Giuliani takes a seat next to Trump and Trump looks over at Giuliani and says, Rudy, you're a baby, Trump said loudly. I've never seen a worse defence of me in my life. They took your diaper right off you there. You're like a little baby that needed to be changed. When are you going to be a man? And then Trump turns to the others, especially Bannon. Why did you put him on? He can't defend me. I need somebody to defend me. And Bannon goes, what are you talking about? This guy's the only guy that went on. And Trump replies, I don't want to hear it. It was a mistake. He shouldn't have gone on. He's weak. You're weak, Rudy. You lost it. Just, what do you even say? Well, that was... (laughs) (laughs) And thanks for coming. (laughs) It's been a great night. We love you, Perth. Hope you have a great night's sleep. <laughs> oh, that's pretty skin crawling. Yeah, I know. Anyway. Luckily, Australian politics is just so much more uh, 
full of excellent behaviour. Hey, we forgot to say before that we'll take some audience questions. Oh, yeah, that's um, right. So um, there's going to be – there's a couple of microphones set up in the aisles and so in a second we'll do that. But before we do that, can I ask you about one thing that I've been dying to hear about that we haven't okay. talked about? You went to see a film that I really want to go and see called Wife. Oh, yeah. How was it? With Glenn Close. Great. So yeah. good. What What She's, is it about? Okay, so the story is – so Glenn Close is the wife of a uh, famous novelist and he uh, – the film opens where they're kind of in bed and they're a bit nervous because he's on – he's been shortlisted for the Nobel Prize and at some point in the next 12 to 24 he'll find out whether he's won the Nobel Prize for Literature and the phone rings, you know, middle of the night and – He's won it and it's just this extraordinary moment. But then the rest of the film is um, what happens when um, as they prepare for the trip to Geneva and for the, the ceremony and what happens to their relationship and what you find out about how their relationship works. And, like, mm. as you know, I'm very interested in, you know, wives <laughs> but this is a particular like there's some great twists in this story but um glenn close is just spectacular i love her she is just this vehicle for controlled rage she can say so much with a blank expression it's just like it's it's an extraordinary accomplishment you know she's incredible i have read the novel that this um that forms the basis for this film and I won't give away the – because there is a really significant kind of twist which I won't describe because it would open me to accusations. Is it also called Wife? Um, yeah, it's called right. The Wife by Meg Wolitzer or Wolitzer. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, and it's one of these um, films that is um, – it doesn't – I mean, it's set – lots of it is set in Geneva but it's, it's, it's an inside – it's an inside film um, and it is the profile of this relationship. It's completely gripping. And the great thing about it, and I think, you know, where, where you see films and the mood that you're in when you see them is so important. Like I watched you be so excited that whatever, like, whatever happened to Baby Jane was on. And like I'm sure that that fueled your enjoyment of that film. Or just like if you're really busy and you've got like jobs and kids and whatever, like who goes to the movies? I hardly ever go to the movies, right? So – I had a very crazy – I mean, you wouldn't understand. I've been very busy for the last um, six weeks or so. And so – That biscuit was really delicious, yeah. by the way. <laughs> so I was happy to let you keep speaking. I know. I'll just keep talking. Um, um, so I pretended that I was going to work, but actually I went to the movies in the middle of the day. <laughs> it was like – it was like having an affair, actually. It was like <laughs> – and I just – like, it was so – pleasurable I just and you know it was the middle of the day and I, I had a glass of wine in the cinema <laughs> it was so great wow. and then I went and picked up my kids from school and like you know I, no, I was wasn't I promise I wasn't like across the board slacking off for the whole week but I did give myself this day of just like really phoning it in I wrote something in the morning so <laughs> I was being productive <laughs> Um, I've just written a rant actually which um, might appeal to you and it's a, it's a bit wifey so I'll just mention it. Here's one thing like there's a lot of weird things that have happened in Australian politics in the last uh, little bit. No. But here's one thing that really wigs me out. You know that Scott Morrison and Josh Frydenberg are the first Prime Minister Treasurer duo to both have young kids since 1977, which is when um, Malcolm Fraser, uh, who had like a nine-year-old and a 15-year-old, I think, uh, appointed John Howard, who had like a, um, a three-year-old, a, a, a nothing, like a newborn, and then one on the way, a twinkle in the eye. Um, so that was the last time that you had a PM Treasurer Cobbo that both had little kids, like primary school or younger. And um, so that's kind of interesting, I think. And uh, the thing that really interests me is that they've been in office for three weeks and nobody has asked them how they're going to manage. Oh. Isn't that funny? Because, like, can you imagine if 
the Liberal Party had appointed two women to those jobs. I know, but, like, just <laughs> stick with me. Like, that would be, like, if, if, if they'd appointed two women with young children to be Prime Minister and Treasurer, that would be all that they would be asked about for the first four days. Like, oh. there would be a national nervous breakdown about whether these chicks were going to be up to it with the kids and everything. Oh, my God, 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 are you okay? Are you okay? Are you really okay? Are they going to be okay? Is everyone okay? Do we have to pay for the nanny? You know, all of that stuff. But, like, these guys just like, oh, yeah, someone will manage that. And so I, I don't want to do a spoiler alert, but I do believe Annabelle Crabb has asked them that question. I have asked we'll be them. reading about that soon. Tune in Monday. Shall we take some questions? Sure. Hi, this isn't a question, it's a comment. Oh, we love those. <laughs> Sorry. Oh. It's a very manny thing to do, I know. <laughs> I just wanted to say thank you, Annabelle, for the two incredibly insightful articles that you wrote during the perplexing time oh, that we've had. Oh, so the, good. Yeah, weren't they amazing? Just yes. su- such cut through. And from someone who's on the outside of all of the brouhaha that goes on in, Can- in Canberra, it helped me to understand what was really going Thank on. You. And you you articulated especially the Julie Bishop stuff and what was going on there. So you're awesome. Thank you. Both Thank of you. you Thank you much. very much. I'll accept that what comment. <laughs> I agree. I thought that they were the best things that I read about I mean, I've said this to you a few times now and it's going to your head, so I hate to say it again, but I thought they were the best pieces of analysis I read about the whole thing. And actually I told you to put them in for the Walkleys. Did you do that? I did. Good work. <laughs> well done. How about over here? Oh, no, sorry, that's the attendant. <laughs> so bossy. <laughs> All right. We got some um, – oh, okay, no, if you want to ask a question because otherwise we've got some questions that people sent us. It's so they're... good, like, watching sales try to wrangle people because she quite often, like, wrangles me. <laughs> Like yesterday when we were doing this session at the um, oh God. <laughs> the, the conference, we were at the end of the day scheduled to do 20 minutes of sort of wrap-up and observations about the thing. And sales is, of course, watching the little clock and it's gone down to zero. And Which it flashes at you in red, like so you're in no doubt that you are – get off. And so the um, the deal is that we do our 20 minutes and then I go up to the podium and thank everybody and whatever. But, of course, I'm having a nice time, so I don't do that at all. I just keep, like, opening up new avenues of conversation while, cli- while, while Lee Sales quietly loses her mind. Can you not see the panic on my face when you're doing it? Like, okay. Because what happened was I tried about three times to – sort of very subtly help her see that we were there. Like, you know, the verbal sort of equivalent and non-verbal of signs. When you're trying to get someone off the phone, you're like, well, um, all right then, well, I better be. And so I'd do that equivalent and then she would just go, oh, it reminds me of the time when I blah, blah, blah. And then she'd, off she'd go again to the degree that I just, after a while, thought, all right, well, bloody hell, I hope there's not like, you know, people trying to get their cars out of parking by 510. She's worried about the parking. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> You've finished whatever anecdote and then looked at me expectantly like to, you know, you've batted the ball over to me to carry it on. No. <laughs> she dead batted me. Awkward like two or three she seconds. She no-platformed me. There was this awkward two or three second pause and then she sort of looked at me like, it's your turn. And I went, oh, no, I'm not saying anything because the time is at zero and we're out of time. I just had to like fully sort of drop her in it. Oh, oh, oh I'll wrap things up then. Thank you very much. Um, just hold on for a second because I've got to tell one more quick thing. Um, the other thing that um, Sales actually disclosed at this conference yesterday, which was so interesting and I did not know about you, was your technique of getting people's phone numbers when you were the Washington correspondent and you were looking for people's phone numbers in the State Department. Mm-hmm. Can you just share that technique because it's so off the charts bizarre? It was the White House actually, the National Security Council. Um, I... You'd often you'd you'd needed to get access because you had to find out what was happening, and if you you just could not get to people because when you're an Australian foreign correspondent, you just nobody, no one wants to talk to you. So um, if you got like say a secretary's number, you know, because often like phone numbers will be in a building the same, but the last two digits will be different. And so in the Bureau of Asian Affairs, which is where I needed to speak to this guy Mike Green. I had the secretary's number, which ended like 01. So I just waited till 9 or 10 o'clock at night um, when I knew no one would be in the office and then I dialed 02, 03, 04, 05. You get everyone's voicemail, you just make a list of who's there, then you ring in business hours, you go straight through to whoever you want. Which, uh, look, 
I admire the ingenuity and I also admire the rare preparedness of Lee Sales to stay up beyond 9pm, which is like not something that well, actually you know, regularly happens. This is actually 11pm Sydney time. I know, love. So, I know. Anyway, sorry. Just have a little snooze while I tell the rest of the story. And then <laughs> the only other person that I know of executing exactly that same technique is a certain quite recent Prime Minister of Australia called Malcolm Turnbull, (laughs) who, when he was um, a political reporter briefly for Channel 9 um, as as a young man, he was in New York for something or other and Rupert Murdoch had just been announced, like he'd made a bid to buy, like I can't remember what, I don't know, it was like some massive media takeover, I can't remember exactly which one. And so he said to Channel 9, I'll try and get an interview with Murdoch. And um, he asked for an interview, got rebuffed, and he went to a phone box and just started ringing numbers, like doing exactly the same thing. And he got Murdoch, like direct line, bullseye. And he said, oh, Mr Murdoch, this is Malcolm Turnbull from Channel 9. I'm just, I'm just downstairs. I'd, just, I'd love to do an interview with you. And Murdoch was so kind of charmed by this lunatic's persistence that he said all right i'll give you 10 minutes i'll meet you downstairs and he got this interview so there you go i also got an interview with mike green who became a very handy contact um your question um i've been very horrified that's what's been happening to female politicians in canberra and i think that no matter whether we vote liberal labor greens whoever it's all going to be the same do either of you have any ideas of what we can do as female voters to show our disgust with what's going on in parliament well, there's like a really obvious thing you can do as a voter, like, you know, is, you know, perform your democratic function in a way that is strategic. Um, obviously, it's not always um, possible to make a really articulate protest using one vote, particularly in a seat where you don't have an option of voting for a woman. Um, look, I think what annoys me sometimes about the sort of this debate about gender balance in politics is that it's kind of all or nothing. We go for years not worrying about it and then we have this massive panic attack about, you know, whoa, why are there more women? Look, I think it's really obvious why there aren't more women and, you know, we tend always to skew towards this debate about like, oh, is question time too mean or is, um, you know, the pre-selection process too loaded and, you know, all of that. But there's heaps of stuff that I think is much more influential on the decisions that women make um, and it's about the way um, family responsibilities are viewed. Like that thing that I said before about, you know, Scott Morrison and Josh Frydenberg being parents and nobody ever like worrying, like, you know, men have been like breeding like cabbage moths in the in the, um, in the cabinet forever and nobody ever cares like or wonders who's looking after the kids or anything like that. But ask Tanya Plibersek, ask, you know, Nicola Roxon, ask Kelly O'Dwyer, you know, who's recently become the first female cabinet minister to ever give birth while serving as a cabinet minister. Nicola Roxon in 2007 became the first woman to serve in cabinet whilst raising a preschool-aged child, like after more than 100 years of federation. It's just bonkers. And the truth is that women who want to, the option of having a career in politics and having a family, like an option that is open to any man that serves in politics, are just treated really differently. Ask any of those women who are parents in parliament how many constituent letters they get saying, you are a rubbish mother. And like that is really hard. And, like, if you sign up for that gig, Karen Andrews has just been made um, industry minister in the Cabinet. When she ran for pre-selection in, oh, what year was it? I can't remember, maybe 2010. She got a direct letter handwritten to her by one of the pre-selectors, you know, in her branch saying, um, if you were my wife, I wouldn't let you abandon our children in this way. Like, full-on... Like, never happens to guys. Like, and, and given the way that we assess parenting in this country, like, we on a deep, deep level assume that it's a woman's job, um, it's a really big thing that stops women from getting involved. 
It, it, and it, this is a minor thing, but they do pay attention to, say, the volume of correspondence to their office. Um, yes, they do. From, but, but only if you are a voter of their stripe. So there's no point if you're a Green writing to the – if your local members are Liberal to abuse them for, you know, not supporting women. But if you write a letter and say, I am a Liberal voter and I think, you know, blah, blah, blah on whatever issue, women in politics or whatever, if they get a critical mass of, of letters or emails or phone calls or whatever – they will think, oh, geez, we're getting a lot in the electorate about blah, blah, blah. So I think, you know, that's politicians expect people to come up to them and talk to them. And if you go up sort of and politely go, hi, I just wanted to say I voted for you last time around, but I'm thinking of changing my vote because I don't like the Liberal Party's attitude towards women. If enough people do that, it does rattle them. They do definitely pay attention to that. So it is small, but, you know, it's if you get the opportunity, it is good to actually have those conversations. So. Probably got time for one more question. question if there's somebody who would like to ask one. Oh, there's a lady here. Lovely. Hello. Um, Hello. I think that a lot of chatters can agree in the room that something that we love about listening to the podcast is the authenticity of your friendship and being a fly on the wall to that is just amazing. But I wanted to ask what particular friendship or relationship from a, a book or a film really caught your eye and has kept you thinking? Huh, that's a really good question. I always get, when I get a question like this, I always think of something four hours later that I'm like, that's what I should have said. Oh, for sure. Um, I I thought you were going to say, um, you know, do you feel sort of has resonated in your life? I mean, I always loved the friendship between Anne of Green Gables and Diana Barry. Um and I often will think of myself as like, well, I'm Anne and you're Diana and, you know. <laughs> or <laughs> my friend Mandy, you know, used to be Diana. Um, so. <laughs> I love how you've just cast this uh, without no, consulting I like, any. I do like women's friendships. Like I liked Fried Green Tomatoes at the Whistle Stop Cafe by Fanny Flagg. Um, I like those things. But then also, um, I mean – I hate to raise the Americans again because we've talked about it so much, but like Philip and Elizabeth's relationship, I just found so fascinating the dynamics in that. I absolutely loved the book and the television adaptation of Olive Kittredge, if anyone's seen that or read it. Um, and it, she's the Olive Kittredge, um, played by Frances McDormand, is the central person, and it's sort of it's almost like a wheel with spokes. All the relationships she has with people, and they're all different and really complex, and the writing. And the film execution too, it's just – it's so subtle but there's so much in really sparse writing and really sparse dialogue. And so just when the dialogue's sparse, you can bring a lot of your own imagination and interpretation um, to it. And so, yeah, I, I, I love those sort of films where you imagine – you know, I bet you if I watched Olive Kittredge today, different things would leap out at me in the relationships because of where I'm at in my own relationships with people. And so those type of – Piece, works of art I find really great. Um, I really admire the way you answered that question because you summoned up all of these examples and I still can't think of any because I'm just <laughs> like a rabbit in the spotlights. But I would say just quietly like this um, whole podcast thing, which, I mean, how long have we been doing it for now for? We started in late 2014. Okay, because she's About got it four in her years. diary. Yep. Um, so... The whole experience has been very interesting and sometimes quite overwhelmingly lovely. Like it just feels like we've kind of met a whole lot of people and just found this whole tribe of people that have just been, I don't know, it's just been a really miraculous way of tapping into a lovely community, which has been um, just one of the nicest things that's happened, you know, speaking to me in, in a long time. Um, and... Um, when we started doing the podcast, we thought, oh, you know, like it's handy. People like like to listen to talking about books and get little pointers and people who are busy maybe might tune in to um, get some ideas about things to read or things to watch or whatever. But actually what became really clear fairly quickly was that really the more important thing was that it was really more about friendship and just enjoying friendship and it didn't really matter what we were talking about. And I feel like whenever we meet people, you know, th things like tonight or just you run into people, that seems to be the main thing. And it's just been yeah, a really lovely 
And often the sillier and more mundane thing we're talking about, the more people do seem to enjoy it because it does remind you of times with your friends. I think it's the, one of the other reasons, because it's about friendship, it's why people respond so warmly to, say, Callum, because he feels like their friend as well. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you know, sometimes they respond a little too warmly to Callum. <laughs> Some of, some of the people guy. he meets who want to go on dates with him because he's hot, Callum. Um, but, yeah, that I agree. Like the sort of, um, I don't know, just how it's been really amazing to see how much people love their own friends and enjoy listening to the podcast because everyone's so busy and so they feel like if you listen to this, it gives you a sort of hit of the same feeling you get when you see your own friends, but you're often too busy to see your own friends. So you can be in your car listening to us and it gives you the same sort of release or of you get whatever chemical it is. thing happening like that woman that we met yesterday, um, Hannah, her name is, who um, I like to remember her from the podcast because she – we were doing something really stupid or having some really ridiculous conversation and it reached this sort of zenith where both of us were just snorting and laughing and Hannah fell off her exercise ball thing at the oh, gym. No. Like she just like went absolutely arse over. And then um, – and then – she must have messaged us or something or it was on the group and then we were then in the subsequent podcast um, pissing ourselves laughing about how this woman had like nearly killed herself at the gym and then her other friend, Anna, was driving along um, listening to the podcast and we mentioned her friend Hannah like falling <laughs> off the thing and she nearly drove into a tree. Like it was just this kind of cycle of violence. <laughs> And then there was a, you know, farmer coming to um, remove the broken down tree. No, it could keep going. But the the best thing sometimes is like hearing from people particularly who have like been alone or just like in hospital or just sad or just not able to sleep for some reason and, and, you know, have found it useful at some weird hour of the night to have two, like a bit of hag exploitation happening. Right, well, these two hags are past their bedtime. So. Yes, it's, it's 11 p.m. Anyway, it's been awesome to be in Perth. Thank you so much for coming. We really appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>